Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded on February 20th, 2014. The theme of the show was Lived Relived. Okay, moving right along. Our next storyteller is somebody who, uh, for whom I have oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of respect. Uh, she's been an important fixture in this town's creative scene for a long time. Uh, she is currently doing education and community outreach for the Colorado Symphony. She's also a member of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. And in a, in a former life, she was Westward's music editor. Uh, she's really cool. We're excited to have her back on the show. Please welcome Laura Bond. You know, when you write for a living and, and you write about other people's lives for a living, you sort of relive through them. You don't always like check to make sure that what you have in your mind is, is accurate to their experience. Um, and sometimes you just kind of go with it. So I was writing for a living, and I was writing all the time. Um, and I wrote about music and people who made music. And um, at that time, it was, you know, early 2000s in Denver. There were lots of wonderful and amazing, earnest people that were making all kinds of great music in Denver. And there were also lots of wonderful and amazing people that were making music that wasn't as great. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it could be difficult sometimes to figure out kind of what to do with that and I really wasn't a person who was sort of like naturally um, should have necessarily been a music critic I I wasn't like a crate digging kind of person I never had that compulsion to like go to wax tracks for five hours I found that really boring actually I, I had an, an older brother who like force fed me cool music from the time I was like three and a half so I just never really had that that gene I guess um, and you know, it was a hard job. It was a dream job in so many ways. It was fun, and I got to meet all these great people. But you know, I had to, like, crank out a lot of stuff, and by nature, it was very public. And, you know, sometimes you make mistakes when you're writing every week. And, and I learned something about human nature at that time, which is people tend to write and call you when they're, like, really pissed off about something <laughs> that you, you wrote. Or they get, like, really indignant when they catch you in something. So I remember one time I wrote about... Gil Scott Heron playing at the Lions Lair, and it was a great show. And, you know, I said that he was playing an organ, which really was a big mistake. He played an electric piano. And somebody called and left me a voicemail, and he said that I should get a job jumping on a trampoline while members of Limp Biscuit stuffed tampons up my nose. I was not aware that was a job. So I kind of started to change my approach to the whole thing. I was just kind of moving into a different phase, I guess. And I started to write about people that I, I found to have some kind of, you know, marginal, marginalized beauty, sort of like Denver folk hero types. Um, I, I wrote about this old jazz man who had been unfairly thrown into jail. And some small part of my story played some small part in getting him out of jail. And, and he was back in jail like two weeks later. But... Uh, <laughs> And I wrote a story about this guy who had uh, written an opera that was dedicated to his true love, who happened to be a horse on the 16th Street Mall. <laughs> so, um, you know, people like that. So it was around this time someone told me about Philip Hammond Jr., who went by the nickname of Phil the Fan. And did anybody 
No Phil in this room? Okay, good. Couple, couple Phil people. So here's what I was told about Phil at the time. I was told that he was a Denver legend. I was told that he was the hugest music fan that anyone could imagine. And not like the usual like music freaks that we all know, people that are like obsessed with, you know, Sebado or like Cambodian punk rock or whatever. He was obsessed with local bands exclusively. So, um, so that much I knew. And I also knew that he was different, um, that he had some challenges cognitively, physically, and that these challenges would be evident to me when I met Phil. Um, so I sought him out, and I first met him at a club on South Broadway called the Atrium, which is no longer there. And I came in, and there was like probably 12 people there, not including the band, which was a very run-of-the-mill sort of funk cover band. They were on stage, um, you know, Tuesday night, something like that, like on the scale of happeningness, it was probably like a solid 3.2. It was not a big thing. Um, but in the middle of the room, probably 10, 10 feet or so in front of the stage, there was this guy, and he had this table in front of him, and he was you know, kind of tall, and he had these Wayfarer-style frames on, and like Dickies with suspenders, and Doc Martens, and he was probably like 50, and he was just, digging it. I mean, he was so into this band that was playing these funk covers. He was just grinning from ear to ear. And he had this rig in front of him. It was like this makeshift contraption, and it had this scrawl on the side of it, and it said, um, fill the fan, light shows of America. And it had all these, like, little, you know, wires and things coming out of it, and, like, little levers and little light bulbs like you'd see around the, you know, frame of a dressing room mirror. Um, so I went up and introduced myself, and, and he, he told me to be, be quiet because the band was starting another song. <laughs> and they started another song, and it was like this very familiar refrain, like this popping bass sound, and then, you know, the lead singer said back, outward. And <laughs> Phil got so excited, and he started flashing the lights, and I realized that the lights were totally choreographed to the song, and the song, of course, was Brick House. <laughs> and... I guess that was a song that was so popular in that era that he had like a whole number that went to it. A lot of, usually he was more extemporaneous. But so this is what Phil did. He took his light show around and he uh, just gave love to bands. So when they were done, you know, they came off the stage and he gave them all hugs and they all, they all knew him, it seemed like. Um, and he would go around town all over the place. I mean, he would go to... The usual places at that time, like the Cricket on the Hill and Herman's Hideaway and the Lion's Lair. Um, he showed up faithfully for certain bands, like he loved Tinker's Punishment. I don't know if anyone remembers Tinker's Punishment. Um, but he also showed up for bands that no one had ever heard of. Like he would take the bus to Aurora to see some crappy blues cover, like at a Hooters on, you know, South Parker Road or whatever. Um, and he was not content to merely spectate. He wanted to participate. You know, he had this light show, and he viewed himself as integral to the music, and, and so he was. And, you know, there was that phenomenon a couple of years ago where, like, 100 people would show up at some obscure band's set, and they knew all the words and stuff. And Phil was like that. He was like a one-man version of that, except there was no irony whatsoever in what he was doing. It was just pure love. And I asked him one night why he did this. Why did he devote so much time to these bands that no one had ever heard of? And um, we'd been hanging out a lot at that point, and he was pulling pretty hard on a, on a Diet Coke. He liked to hit those pretty hard, and he thought about it for a minute, and he, he, he slammed it down, and he looked at me, and he said, well, 
what it comes down to is that I'm just a party guy. <laughs> I found that very persuasive. So, so Phil let me come to his apartment, and it was, uh, it was on 13th and Penn, and he, uh, he paid for it himself. He was self-reliant, um, and it was basically a, a museum. I mean, it was filled with posters from every local show you could think of going back like 15 or 20 years and a lot of them he'd made himself he had this very distinct handwriting you know sharpie and stuff um and it was filled with his own art like these weird yarn sculptures and like masks that he'd made and skulls and stuff he was really into skulls um and i wrote at the time that it was the kind of found environment that capitol hill hipsters try to cultivate through years of thrift store shopping that was what it was like um and he had all these posters that were laminated. He had all these friends at Kinko's that would like do stuff for him for free. Um, and he had records from cool old Denver bands like the Rock Tots and the Fluid and stuff. And, and he would put them on. And in his words, he would dance like a skeleton. <laughs> and I would also dance like a skeleton. Um, so I got to know the things about Phil, too. I went with him to um, the ARC, um, which used to stand for the Association for Retarded Citizens. Phil was the head of a citizen group there, and he uh, he helped other people with disabilities learn how to be more self-reliant, like how to take the bus and how to maintain jobs and stuff like that. And Phil had a job. He was a janitor at the University of Denver. And sometimes he got in trouble because he was supposed to stick to the task of like emptying the garbage in the dorms or whatever. But he would, you know, be found like telling some college girl that she really needed to go check out Dear Marsha. <laughs> and I asked him about it once, like, how do you feel about getting in trouble at work? And he said, well, it's a job and I come and I go, but I don't have to live that place. So I wrote a story about Phil, and it came out, and it wasn't on the cover of Westward, but it was teased on the cover with this little box that was his name on the cover. And um, when you jumped to the backbeat section, there was this big picture of Phil grinning, and you, know, you could see his apartment and all that cool stuff. And um, I was happy with the story, and Phil was really happy with the story. And he, um, he wanted to thank me, so he took me to dinner at Governor's Park, which was kind of his hang, and that was right by his house. Um, and he, you know, I showed up, and he showed up, and he was wearing like this three-piece suit, this like brown polyester suit and this bow tie and his hair was slicked back with pomade or something and he was just so proud and excited and he introduced me to all his friends because of course he knew everyone everywhere that he went and you know he bought me dinner which was the like the taco bar for happy hour um, and it was really sweet. Um, so Phil made it clear that he really liked the story like a bunch and uh, I started to notice copies of it up around town, like the places that I normally would see posters that he made and stuff, and like the Westward boxes. Suddenly there were copies of the story that presumably Phil was putting up around town. Um, and then there was this other poster that started showing up around town, which was a picture of me, which was like my high school graduation photo that <laughs> he must have found online. And, and there was, like, lettering around it that, that basically said, you know, this, this nice lady told, told my story. And isn't, isn't she a nice lady? And, uh, I, I mean, I realized Phil had become a fan of mine. And uh, I'd be sitting at my desk, and my, my phone would ring, and I'd, I'd pick it up. And it, it was Phil, who's the prettiest girl in the whole wide world. <laughs> well, that's you. That's you. That's you. 
And then he would hang up. <laughs> so Phil showed up one day at Westward, and he had a, like, a copy of the story that was like on orange paper and blown up like this big and laminated. <laughs> and he wanted me to keep writing about him, you know? And so I did when I could. I would like get him into a column or something like that. I would, I would make references to him as often as it made sense. But uh, eventually I had to move on to other things and so did the paper and my editor made that clear to me. Um, <laughs> so then, unfortunately, um, there was another round of posters that went up around town. Um, and I had turned from being, you know, I guess the prettiest girl in the world to the meanest girl in the world. Phil was very upset that, that Westward couldn't keep running stories about him, and he just didn't really understand why, because he'd given so much attention to other people, and he was finally, you know, sort of getting some credit, I guess, and, and he liked the way that felt, and he wanted it to keep going, and, and you know, who could blame him? Um, so it was, it was a dilemma. Got some more calls, my phone started ringing more, and I would pick it up, and sometimes there would be nothing. And another time I picked it up and it was Phil and he said, well, it's just this publicity, this publicity, this publicity. I can't get enough of this publicity. So about that time I got a call from Phil's caseworker at the Ark. His name was Tony. And um, he said he'd had misgivings about the story from, from the start. But, you know, he, he let it go. Um, but that I probably should just cut off my contact with Phil, that the story had been a bit much for him, maybe the whole experience, and that I should give him time to move on. Um, and then he added that, you know, there's some people that probably you should just leave alone. And he's probably right about that. So I did, and the posters came down around town, and the calls stopped, and things returned to, you know, an equilibrium. And it was probably a year before I saw Phil again, and, and when I did, it was across a parking lot. He was riding his bike around outside the Westward Music Showcase, and he had his white bicycle helmet on, and I, I don't know if he had his rig with him, but I, ho I hope he did. Um, and then a few years later, and it's been a few years ago now, um, Phil died, and he succumbed to the heart problem that crowned the complicated genetic bouquet that was gifted to him upon entry into this world. His funeral was held in a large chapel off South University Boulevard, which was absolutely packed on that bright morning. His, his family and people from his church and dozens of people from the Denver music scene. I mean, it was like Pete's Kitchen in there or something. <laughs> um, and there were also lots of people there from the citizens group at the Ark, his friends. Um, and they got up, you know, people got up one after another to pay tribute. And there were lots of very moving odes to fill that day, the one that I remember best. One of his friends from the Ark got up and said, Phil was my friend. He always treated me kind. He always treated me fair. I love you, Phil. God bless America. <laughs> I, mean, I have to say, I, fortunately, I haven't been to that many funerals, but this one was really great. And uh, I haven't been sure how to end this story. I mean, I really just uh, wanted to take the opportunity to... Uh, reflect on what it was like to to relive some aspect of Phil through having the chance to tell his story. Um, and I think about him all the time. So it wasn't just sort of like a one-off thing for me. It wasn't just a, a story that I got to put my name onto and then, and then move on. The reason why there were so many people in that 
church that day and so many people that had so much appreciation and love for this person is that he wasn't just a fan of music, he was a fan of life um, and of other people and, and just of, of being loving in general. So um, I guess I just want to say thanks to Phil and God bless America. <laughs> That was Laura Bond. Yeah. Our next storyteller, he's near and dear to this show. He actually designed the logo for our show. Um, he designed my book cover. Uh, if you've seen a poster for comedy in this town, you've probably seen his work. Uh, he's one of the founders of a new magazine called Birdie, uh, and it's very exciting. It's sort of it's bringing magazines like full color. It's Pretty cool. They're doing amazing shit. He has a, a website where you can find uh, his graphic design work. It's velveteenrobot.com. He also has another website uh, called Sketchbook Foster Home that you should seek out if you need uh, some funnies. Uh, please welcome Michael King. I grew up in a mill town called Pineville a dying ember of the North Carolina textile industry. Now, the town is basically a suburb of Charlotte as more highways came in and more cattle herds were replaced with Walmarts and Home Depots. Main Street was where I got my first haircut and where I'd spend my allowance on nickel candy uh, at Blankenship's General Store, all replaced today with antique galleries, wine bars, and bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. Then the town felt frozen in time, a perpetual Rockwellian 1964 that might never end. The barbershop had the rotating pole, the comb suspended in bright barbicide. All overseen by the elderly barber in the white smock. World War II veterans with metal claws for hands and battery-powered voice boxes would sit inside under a grand mural of the rapture and chew the fat for hours. Um, my father and his brothers also had their boyhood haircuts here by the same barber under the gaze of those same veterans. They also likely went next door after for handfuls of penny candy and balsa wood airplanes powered by tightly wound rubber bands because it was the South and it's like the 60s just didn't stop. I'm at least fourth generation to grow up here in a stone's throw away from the South Carolina border. I'm an only child. I was raised in the same house as my father and his two brothers. It's a tiny three-bedroom bungalow in a neighborhood originally built as accommodations for the corduroy mill uh, there in town. My bedroom still had weird stickers and wall damage from the previous generation of rowdy boys that had lived there. My Star Wars sets and Lego sets shared space with the ghosts of wooden cowboy dolls and bags of marbles and whatever else my dad was playing with back then. As an only child, my upbringing was largely defined by toys. I spent a great deal of time playing by myself. The best toys were gifted to me on Christmas. We were a poor family, but Christmas was a blowout. Maybe it's because we were churchgoers and into the whole Christ season thing, or maybe because so much of my family lived nearby, but Christmas was an extravaganza. With many rounds of present openings, my house, grandma's house, my cousin's house, and new waves of gifts around every corner new opportunities to get a large S from my family. And for little boy me, in the height of the 80s, Christmas meant one thing. Like, Christmas was the one time, and it had like this one face on it, and that face was G.I. Joe. 
Like, that was the time. That was, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted. And, you know, Star Wars figures and G.I. Joe figures, they're about the same size. So much so that the play sets are often interchangeable with Darth Vader coming into combat with Snake Eyes and Bazooka or Han Solo sharing the Millennium Falcon with Destro. Star Wars figures, though, had the misfortune of being rigid and unbendable, whereas G.I. Joe had articulated limbs and the kung fu grip, which is basically just a twistable forearm, so he could, like, grab the steering wheel of whatever vehicle he was in. Um, They could be configured into crouching poses or made to grapple with each other like wrestlers. Each figure came with a card indicating their code name, specialty, and various strengths, kind of like a baseball card collector thing, but more militaristic. There are plenty of vehicles, too. Mighty and improbable tanks, aircraft, jetpacks. Christmas was indeed the time of G.I. Joe. I remember getting the G.I. Joe hovercraft and whining after I had whined about it since July, and eventually it came my way. And then, surrounded by discarded wrapping paper and bows, I'd lay on my stomach under the tree before a pile of action figures making explosion and machine gun noises while the adults drank coffee in the kitchen. G.I. Joes weren't just army guys, though. See, they had names and specialties, like I said, but their appearance was all different. Like, G.I. Joe had one of every specialty, as did Cobra. Like, you have, like, one guy who does mines, one guy who does the tank, one guy, like, no teams. Like, everybody has one specialty, and they just have 40 of those guys. So there was Barbecue. He was a good guy. He was an orange firefighter in a gas mask who came with an axe, but he looked like a robot because he had a mask on. Like, 90% of all G.I. Joe guys have masks on because that's that's how you fight a war in G.I. Joe land. Beachhead was a ranger who wore a balaclava and dark camouflage, kind of like Serbian army-style camouflage. Uh, Evil twins Tomax and Zamot wore matching cobra leggings and sinister red sashes and cobra knee pads, and they were weird, and one had a scar. The dreaded Crimson Guard had a cool face mask, and he was all red and came with a bayoneted rifle and a weird backpack that I lost. (laughs) G.I. Joe also began to get more experimental with its line. Zartan, the master of disguise. Zartan came with a mustachioed disguise. It was a little plastic face you could, like, squish onto his real face. It was kind of creepy. And his skin would change color when you put him in hot water. That was pretty cool. Um, So my grandma's house in this little town, my grandma's house, is another scene of carnage. It's just up the hill in town, and across from her lived my primary childhood friend, Mark Falkenberry. Um, If my appetite for G.I. Joe's was impressive then Mark's was downright lusty. (laughs) Aided by his parents, he amassed a wealth of the G.I. Joe ecosystem, all the figures, all the forts, all the armadas. (sighs) He had them displayed like champions, all lined up and perched in and on their vehicles. I'd go over to his house and marvel at the display of militaristic might. He had the Cobra H-I-S-S, or Hiss tank. Uh, It's a play on words, Cobra. Um, it's a sleek black machine on treads supporting a plastic gun turret. He had the Skyhawk, which was a green jet sled on skis. He had the Snake, another acronym, but I could not find out what it stood for today on the internet, so I have no idea. It's just called the Snake, and it was their devious battle exoskeleton into which any figure could be placed for maximum combat advantage. I'd stuff a backpack full of my figures and holler, I'm going to go play at Mark's! 
his house was Valhalla of G.I. Joe, and I relished every opportunity to get my hands on his limited editions and mail-in-only items. In his backyard, we'd dig trenches and construct earthen battlements. Vast armies would assemble and maneuver around clumps of red clay and blue grass. I wish I remembered more of the actual playtime, the strategies, the shared fantasy. Our bond was toys. Our friendship was predicated on a mutual appreciation and understanding of all things Joe. We'd rage our battles until supper time, only to continue them the next day. They grew more and more epic in scope until every piece of Mark's massive collection had to be in play. Flint rolled in on the bridge layer while storm shadow rained hell on high from the twin-engine Raptor plane, my personal favorite vehicle. Often we wound up with two of the same figure because we both had some crossover. Um, and we'd work up some combats where Snake Eyes had to fight himself. Or a Cobra commander had to contend with himself in three different uniforms because there were like eight versions of that dude. <laughs> I had even taken a magnifying glass to some of my lesser figures and burned bullet holes and in gore into their torsos and took red model paint and like made battlefield casualties for these wars. So, yeah, so my mom still has like some limbless G.I. Joes in her memory box that I see that I'm just like, oh God, I had no respect for the gifts that she gave me. <laughs> Those guys were the dead, the fallen. My parents divorced in 1986. I was 12. It was unheard of, not only in our family, but also in our community. It's a little town. It was scandalous. The talk of church chatter and that whispered gossip that only Southerners seem to know how to do so well. My mother and I moved into Charlotte, and I was sent to a new school, leaving behind Mark and all my friends for the first time ever. It was awful. Made worse by the transitions that everyone at that time was going through, most 12-year-old boys at my new school were already talking about girls and showing their muscles to each other. <laughs> I love my G.I. Joes. They were more interested in cutting class and stealing cigarettes. We moved around a lot, my mom and I. We came out to Colorado with my mom's new boyfriend. And after that fell apart, we moved back to Charlotte. Got to relive that life a little bit. By 14, I still had an outgrown G.I. Joe's, kind of a late bloomer. Um, <laughs> my play with them had become less imaginative, less all-consuming, but I could still lose myself in a yard dug with trenches and earthen berms, moving my tanks and artillery through the grass until they were coated in mud. And around them was the last I went to play at Mark Falkenberry's house. I had been gone a year in Colorado, now back again, so I was going over to his house. I filled up my backpack with ripcord, blowtorch, airtight. All I was missing was picnic. Um, all these things, yeah, I just had the greatest names. All my favorites. I imagined Mark and I reliving the battles of yore. Maybe finding some old war zones in his backyard. Building new battlements. He was sure to have so many G.I. Joes. I'd been gone a year. This guy had to have had an amazing collection by this point. Things I had overlooked. Christmases had been leaner for me since my parents got divorced. The usual bounty of figures had all but dried up. My parents, their incomes were split. I was lucky to get socks. I couldn't wait to see Mark's news collection. Mark was noticeably older. He was now sporting a dark patch of fuzz on his upper lip, and his voice sounded phlegmy and deep. I chatted with his mom, answering all the usual questions of, how's your mama doing? You still drawing all the time? Well, you tell her I said hey. <laughs> Mark took me to his room to show me some comic books. I noticed the G.I. Joes were gone. 
replaced with baseballs and stacks of books and trophies. Asked him what he did with all of them, and he sort of shrugged. They're all up in the attic, he said. My backpack full of, fo- full of toys suddenly felt heavy and embarrassing. I felt like a child, a little kid. We flipped through comic books. He told me about all the old friends. I don't remember a lot of it. After a while, we said our see you laters, and I went back across the street to my grandma's house. A few months later, I moved back to Colorado again. Here I stayed. Before we left, my mom had a big yard sale in front of our apartment. She wanted to get rid of as much as possible. The less we would have to transport across the country, the better. My G.I. Joes went in a big shoebox with a little tape sign, $1 each. A few days later, we drove out of North Carolina for the last time and headed west. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.